a psalm that talked about aspect of God. We call them attributes. Uh, theologians talk about the attributes of God, characteristics, traits of who God is, what he's like. And what I wanted to do was point to a couple of characteristics that we don't like when we see them in people. Uh, last week we talked about the fact that God is uh, an attention seeker. We don't like people that are attention seekers. They're very annoying, rightly so. But God is an attention seeker. And many people, the reason why they don't want to worship God and don't want to glorify God or they're in a relationship with God but they have deep down in their hearts there's a problem with him is because he doesn't share his glory with anyone. It's maybe why every other religion, the way to get to God is you do stuff. And then the God of the Bible is you can't do stuff. I have to do it. Because I get all the glory. I get all the credit. Well, we talked about how God is self-centered. The difference is when we are self-centered, we're, we center on ourselves at the expense of someone else. God is centered on himself at the expense of himself. And we talked about the connection of, between that and the gospel. So these are things that the Bible reveals about God. They kind of bother us at first, maybe. Or if we think, wow, I didn't really think about it that way. But when you really look at what the Bible talks about, that's what God is like. And what we're going to look at today is that God is a controlling God. He controls. Now, when we, th- we, th- we like to say that, oh, God is in control. I think oftentimes we don't really plumb the depth of what that means. And we don't like that in people when someone's a controlling person. That means they want to set everything up to be their way all the time, right? They, it has to be their restaurant. It has to be their car. They have to drive. It has to be their way, their music on the station. They don't ask you what you like to listen to. They either assume you like what they listen to or they don't care. You know, it's, it's they're in control of all the details. They're a controlling person. And they manipulate things so that they have their way. We already looked at last week that God should have his way because that's glory due his name. If there's one person that everyone else should wrap their agendas around, it's God. And he's worthy of that. He's deserving of that. But then our temptation is to think, but he doesn't, he doesn't make the world such that he secures glory for himself. He just kind of lets things go. But no, he's controlling. He controls the theology, the theological word for that is sovereignty or providence, that he is over all things. He reigns over all things. He's not just watching from a distance. He didn't just create the world, kind of spin it into existence, and he's just kind of watching. I hope things go well. He's over creation. We're going to see that in Psalm 104. So if you can grab your Bibles or slip your hand up, we'll get you a Bible if you need it. Psalm 104. Psalms are kind of middle of the Bible. And then we're in Psalm 104. Okay. And in this psalm we have 35 verses that center on God's sovereignty, God's reign, God's control, God's oversight. His governance of the world. And if you're in here this morning and you're thinking, eh, I'm not really sure this is really relevant for my life. I would, I would beg you to think twice about that. 
when something happens in your life that's bad, did God do it? Did he allow it? Was he like, hey, I, hey, I just spun the world into existence. I didn't do anything. When you're evangelizing someone and they say, I would follow God, except that if he's all-powerful, he lets things happen, or he's not very powerful. He w- doesn't want things to happen, but he can't help it. How do you answer that? I think many of us answer it wrongly. We want to let God off the hook on the bad things that happen in the world by diminishing his control and saying, we're, we're in control. We do all this. We cause wars. We cause problems. We do all these things. But then they tell you, well, I didn't cause a tornado. I didn't cause the earthquake. I, we didn't make the tsunami hit. We didn't cause the, the hurricane floods. Well, well, God is, I mean, he's in control. He's not really in control. So what do we mean when we say God is in control? It's either a comforting doctrine or a disturbing doctrine. But this psalm talks about what that control is like. How sovereign is sovereign? He starts off in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. This psalm, like many psalms, prompts us to worship God and gives us a reason. He's very great. Well, we saw that last week in Psalm 96. He's so great, everyone needs to think he's great. And if someone doesn't think he's great, they're wrong, right, to the point of judgment. He is great. He is the center of all things. This psalm saying, how is he great? And wants to point us to an example of how great God is. He's very great. Well, how great is he? He's so great that he's clothed with splendor and majesty. He's covered with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. When you look, you know, when you're outside of the Chicagoland area and you can actually see the stars and you appreciate like the Milky Way, the, that, that thick white band that goes over from horizon to horizon. And the expanse reminds you of how tiny you are. Yeah, that's just God's tent. It's talking of his bigness, of his grandeur. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters, the big, massive oceans that, that sink our ships, that drown us, that scare us. That's just the foundation of his house. And then he, look at the imagery. He makes the clouds his chariot. When you think of a chariot, that's someone that's in charge. This is his kingly reign. He tells people what to do. People don't tell him what to do. He's the one in the chariot. He's not pulling the chariot. He's not running alongside the chariot. Someone else is not in the chariot, and he's like coming along trying to help them. He's it. He's the center, and he's king, and he reigns, and he's got a chariot, and who are his messengers? Who are his servants? Who are the things? Who are the people that, that do things when he commands it? Well, the clouds, for one. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. And he makes the messengers, his, his messengers, winds. In other words, the winds are his messengers. Messengers of a king 
don't deliver a different message than what the king sent that messenger to go deliver. I'm going to say that again. When a king sends a messenger and tells him to deliver a message, the messenger doesn't deliver a different message than the message that God sent the messenger to deliver. And in this context, who's the messenger that's going to deliver exactly what God wants, exactly when God wants it? Wind. What looks completely random to us, what we can not possibly ever calculate. You've heard of things like the butterfly effect, a, a butterfly flaps his wing in the Amazon basin somewhere. And sometime later, a hurricane happens. And if you trace it all the way back, it could have been caused by the flap of that butterfly's wing. And this is why we can only predict weather a week out, a few days out. The, 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 the most genius uh, meteorologist could not tell you a tornado is going to hit a month from now and where it's going to hit. <clears throat> God can. It's his messenger. In other words, this psalm is trying to show you God is not watching the weather channel going, oh, oh, oh. No, you're doing that. But the winds are his messengers. He rides on the wings of the wind. He owns it. And the minister, his ministers are flaming fires. Probably the image there is lightning strikes. And the lightning is his servant. In other words, lightning doesn't just happen. Lightning gets dispatched. They're his ministers. They're commissioned. He anoints them and sends them out. That's what lightning is to God. For us, completely random, scary, powerful. If it strikes, you know, it's a scary thing. But God owns it. He's over it. And so this psalm shows us right off the bat that he's control, weather, nature, creation. It's his. And then if you look at the next few verses, it talks about how he set creation into place, 5 through 9. He set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountain rose, the valley sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they they might not again cover the earth. So you remember Genesis 1? What is there in the beginning? There's a big mass, a void, chaotic mass of water. And God tells the waters, recede, and they recede, and mountains appear. God spoke that. God told the oceans what to do. And why don't they cover the mountains again? Because he didn't tell them to stop. He didn't tell them to go back. He said, go down, and they went down. That's it. He set a boundary, verse 9. He set a boundary so that where he put the oceans, that's where the oceans are. Where he let the mountains come, that's where he let the mountains go. And that's how they are. I mean, he didn't just set boundaries. But he set direction within the boundaries under his control. Look at verse 6. You covered it. Verse 7. At your rebuke they fled. Verse 5. The valley sank down to the place that you appointed for them. Verse 9. You set a boundary. Now this is exactly what naturalists want to kick against, right? They want to talk about 
the, the, the age of the earth in such big terms, right? It took so many eons for molecules to bounce in the exact right position that things were produced. And I think what this psalmist would argue is, it doesn't matter how many eons it took. You're just punting, you're just punting it back a notch. Where did the molecules come from? Where did that singularity that exploded, where did that come from? The psalmist is saying, God did it. So a naturalist will tell you, well, we don't know where that stuff came from. The psalmist is telling you, well, I know where it came from. God did it. God did it. He spoke it. It happened. And the fact that he covered it, he rebuked, he appointed the place for the mountains and the valleys, verse 8. He's the one that set the boundary. The point of this psalm is not exactly how creation came about, but who was the author of creation? That's where the real argument is. The real argument is not about carbon dating, guys. The real argument is who was the author, random chance or God? And it's God, according to Psalm 104. And not only did he set boundaries, but within those boundaries, he directs and controls. There's purpose. Verse 10, you make the springs gush forth, they flow between the hills, They give drink to every beast of the field. There's a reason why he created valleys and the flow of a river. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So from wine to oil to bread, grass feeding livestock, wild donkeys getting a sip to drink, it's because God controls H2O. Where it goes, how it goes, and all of it. God is over all of that. So any bite of bread, why do we give thanks when we pray? You know, if we start eating first and go, oh, let's pray. Oh, we feel a little bit guilty, right? I took a bite already. Oh, that bite's going to be poisoned. No, we kind of freak out a little bit. It's good to have that sense, though. We would not have this bread or this meal or this oil or whatever were it not for God providing it, period. And so when it tells us that his, he's designed things with purpose so that the animal kingdom is taken care of, so that in the end we are fed and taken care of, But the psalmist wants to push it a little bit beyond just that he made things. It's not just that he made things. It's that he made them and he's currently over it. Now, that's a big difference. Okay, God kind of winding the world into existence and throwing it out there and watching it from a distance is very different from God creating it and being intricately involved in every detail of creation. And the latter is what the biblical portrait of God is, that he is currently intricately involved in creation. So you look at verses 10 through 15, what we just read. He causes the grass to grow, right? In verse 14, before that, we saw that he makes the springs gush forth. When springs gush forth, who's gushing the spring? God is doing it. 
He didn't just set it in time and then watch it. He's currently gushing the springs. The grass is currently growing because God is doing the growing of the grass. You know, we to think God is, God is too busy for that. He's too busy to be concerned about a blade of grass or a bubbling brook. Why should he be bubbling the brook? Why is he over that? Does he have other things to attain to, to pay attention to? We have a limited attention span. God doesn't. He's pushing that grass blade up every spring. God is doing it. And so he is intricately involved. This isn't deism. This isn't a, a theology where God is kind of distant, unconcerned with what's happening on the earth. He's doing it. We see in verses 19 to 23 some similar things. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. You make darkness, and it is night. Now, in 19, he made the moon. Past tense. Verse 20, you make darkness. In other words, he didn't just set the moon on its course. He, he's the one that keeps it on its course. Isn't this Colossians 1, that Christ, it is in Christ that all things hold together. He didn't just throw it out there, but he holds it together. Every sunrise, every revolution of the earth, God is spinning it currently, not some distant time in the past. He's currently doing it. Verse 21, the the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. If a lion goes out, the hunt is successful if God makes it successful. If the lion goes out on a hunt and can't find something, it's because God said, no, not today. What looks random to us, according to this psalm, it's not random. God is doing it. God is providing the kill, that prey, for that predator, or not providing it. Each time the lion goes out. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. You see how he's hinting at how relevant this is for us. Do you go out and produce? That's your paycheck. You did it. It's your talent, your skill. You secured it. You put food on the table. No, you didn't. There would be nothing there to get if God didn't provide it. And so he continues to help us understand why this is so important. It extends to all of creation. O Lord, verse 24, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. Oh, what about like mosquitoes? You know, sharks. Yes, all of them. What about the ones we can't figure out what function they have in creation? Not dependent on you figuring out the function. They're his. They're God's creation. How manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. Some of us think, I, don't, I, think, I think God was out to lunch when he made some of the animals I'm thinking of. No, in wisdom he made them all. The earth is full of your creatures, it says. Here's the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. Those little weird creatures with the floor off the top of their head that we barely have discovered in the bottom of the ocean, the other things we've never yet discovered yet, God cares daily hourly, every minute, every second for those creatures. Because he didn't create them for us to enjoy. He created them for him to enjoy. Because he's the center of all things. 
And so case in point, verse 26, there go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. He likes to watch the Leviathan play, the, the, whether the Leviathan is a whale or a shark or some, some ancient animal that's extinct now. Doesn't matter. Some big beast that would scare people when they were in their ships. Yeah, that's God's pet. He created the, the ocean like a sandbox for, this, for his kid to play in. Another way to translate the Hebrew is for God to play with it. And so God created all things, small things, great things. This is not limiting God. Yeah, God is in charge of the big stuff. God is in charge of the big events. Well, is a blade of grass going a big event or a small event? It has big repercussions if grass doesn't grow, if plants don't grow, vegetations don't grow, if no predators ever catch their prey. Yeah, we've got a lot of problems. But God is over all those small things because they have big ramifications. But he's over the small things. He's not over just the big ramifications. And why does this make a difference? Verse 27, these all look to you to give them their food in due season. They all look to God to give them their food in due season. If the whale can get the plankton, it's because God provided it, period. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When does your dog die? When God takes its breath, that's when. No, 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 it was the tumor, it was the tumor. When God took its breath, that is when. It doesn't just apply to dogs. All of creation is under God. And so any creature lives, dies, eats, is sustained, or even gives birth if God says so. He says in verse 30, When you send forth your spirit, they are created. And you renew the face of the ground. So God grows vegetation. God births animals. He takes breath away. He gives breath. Life and death are his. Verse 31. What is our response to that? May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works who looks on the earth and it trembles, and who touches the mountains and they smoke. He is a powerful, earth-shattering God. What's my response? I'll sing. I sing to the Lord as long as I live. I'll sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to Him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Now I started this off by telling you that this attribute of God is often something that brings people to not praise God. I don't want to praise Him if He's that controlling. Why? Because I don't like the results of His control. I don't like how quickly He took my aunt. I don't like how much violence He's allowing in the city. I don't like the politicians He's allowing to take office. I don't like what he allowed my dad to do to my mom. We can go on and on with the things that we see. If it's under his control, I can't see that he's a good God. And if he's not a good God, I don't want to praise him. But when we read this psalm, it's telling us he's more in control than we ever could have imagined. Every blade of grass, every hunt and kill of a lion, every gust of wind, 
Every flash of lightning, they're his messengers. He sent them. He's over them in that way. And then the response is, I, I, I rejoice in God. I rejoice in him. May he always rejoice in his creation and do whatever he wants with it. Giving life or taking life, letting a Leviathan pray, play or letting a lion starve. You do what you want. You rejoice in it. And I rejoice in you as you rejoice in it. That's not our normal response to a hard doctrine of sovereignty like we're getting in this psalm. And I think the reason why is because we don't like the results that we see. We don't see a perfect world. We see a messed up world. A world that has thorns. A world where the vegetation is difficult to cultivate. A world that's full of disease. War. And natural disasters. The things that wind can do. And we can't say, well, the psalmist just has in mind like a breezy wind. You know, like when you're sitting on your porch with some lemonade. Just that, that's the wind that God is in control of. Everything else is, you know, Satan or something. No. He looks at the earth. He looks on the earth, verse 32, and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. I'm not like fire smoke, but like when there's an earthquake and all the dust that kicks up, right? He's an earth-shattering God. He's not a sort of weak servant or he's like in competition with Satan and Satan produces bad things and God's like, I don't know. He's over all things. Here's some homework. Go home and try to find a verse that talks about something that happened and the Bible reveals that God is like, oh, I, I didn't, that wasn't me. That was Satan. That, that wasn't me. That was, that was a demon. That wasn't me. That was just bad people. I'm going to save you time. There is none. There is none. Even the movements of demons and Satan who do have control of weather, when they're granted it, they can only do it on the length of leash that God allows. So who destroyed Job's family? Well, that's a good question. On one hand, Satan prompted humans to do it. On the other hand, you can say humans did it. The robbers came, right? The Chaldeans came and they fell upon him in a raid and killed his family. Humans did it. Okay, but the author peels it back and lets us see that Satan actually prompted those guys to do it. But it peels back another layer and lets us realize that Satan was only able to do it because God said, okay, go ahead. Otherwise, he couldn't have done it. So who's ultimately in control of Job's suffering? God. And then Job has the same response that this psalmist has. I praise you. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is a doctrine that will make your faith or break it. It'll make your faith or break it. Next time you're in the hospital dealing with suffering, and someone asks you, why is God allowing this? Are you going to contradict Psalm 104? Contradict Job? And say, God doesn't allow it. It's our, own, it's our own doing. We're, we're, we're trying to let God off the hook. But by trying to let God off the hook, we're diminishing an attribute of him that the Bible makes clear, that he's in control. That he didn't spin the world into existence and step back and be like, I don't know, I, I would have been involved, but you guys bit the fruit. No. He steps in, and he sends winds, and he commands lightning. 
And we have to take that good, bad, and ugly. By trying to let God off the hook, we're contradicting a key doctrine. Where God is not in control. Where God is like a demigod, he's weak. And he only controls some things, or he only controls sometimes. Or he only controls on his best days. But if you've been around the Bible for a while, you know that's not true. You know that's not true. Yet there's evil in the world, and we don't live in a perfect place. And the psalmist recognizes that. Verse 35. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord. Now that is a strange verse to insert in this psalm. So far, everything has been about creation and nature and mountains and trees, ocean, forests, brooks, you know, uh, lions hunting and all this kind of stuff. I mean, creation, the, the animal kingdom. And then, Lord, here's my prayer. Wipe out the sinners. And then it closes. Again, I bless you. I praise you. The end. <laughs> what is it? What's going on there? Why is that verse there? That verse is there because he knows we wrestle with this concept of why God allows suffering in the first place. You remember when the disciples asked Jesus, they said, this tower of Siloam, this tower that crumbled, fell apart, and fell on people that were passing by or that were in it. And the tower fell upon these people. And they asked Jesus, why did that tower fall on them? It's the same question we ask. Why did, why did the 9-11, why did the Twin Towers, why did they fall? Why did they fall? Was, was New York sinful? Is it because we don't pray in our schools anymore? What is the connection? A tsunami hits a place and we go, oh, were they, was there paganism going on there? Maybe they should repent from their paganism. A tornado hits. Oh, they, they, they had just allowed gambling. That's what it was. God is sending a tornado to, to kill gamblers. There's this idea in which we want to connect it because if we don't see a connection, we don't get what God is doing. And if we don't get what God is doing, it's hard to appreciate Him. What this psalm is saying is, yeah, there, there is something messed up about this world. And it's sin. They asked Jesus, why did this tower fall on them? You know what Jesus answered? You're asking the wrong question. The question you should be asking is, why didn't that tower fall on you? And then he told them the punchline, unless you repent, you're all going to die. Wow, that's a little bit of a Jesus than like the blush-cheeked, you know, fair-haired guy that just walks around and hugs everybody. You're going to die if you don't repent. Jesus, why are you dodging the issue? I'm not dodging the issue. The people upon which the, the tower fell, Your assumption is they shouldn't die. And it's the wrong assumption. Yes, they should, and so should you. You're not living because someone else deserved to be in a car accident and you didn't deserve to be in a car accident. They did deserve that accident, and so do you. If you're still here and you walked away from a car accident, it's because God gave grace. Not because you deserved it. Not because you earned it. Not because you're good enough to walk away from a car accident. It's because God gave grace in that moment. The breath that you draw right now is because God is supplying it. God is giving that to you. But he doesn't have to. And what the psalmist is recognizing is, yes, this world is messed up and there's disasters. But none of us can watch or tornado and go, we don't deserve that. 
We don't deserve an earthquake. We don't deserve natural disasters. We can't tell God when he should and shouldn't send lightning. If lightning strikes a person versus just a random field, if it causes a fire and people are trapped inside and they die, that's heartbreaking. That is heartbreaking. But we can't go, God wasn't in control of that. He didn't know that was coming. He didn't see it coming. He couldn't prevent it. He's handcuffed somehow because that's not the biblical portrait. Instead, what the psalmist is saying is there's a problem of sin in this world. And eventually, God is going to wipe out the sinners so that this place can be restored. We talk about a new heaven and a new earth. The biblical portrait, the biblical picture is not that we are a people waiting to be in heaven forever. Heaven is a holding place. We're a people looking forward to a new earth. Right? Doesn't Isaiah makes this clear? We're waiting for a place where a lion lies with the lamb and the lion isn't eating the lamb. That's disgusting. That's gross. There will come a place where that animal chain won't be there anymore. You won't be hiking bear, bear with your stupid whistles and bear spray. That won't happen anymore. You'll be like, hey, bear, cuddle it. <clears throat> That's the new earth. That's not now. Why will a bear eat you alive now? Why do you go swimming? And if, if it's not a shark, it's a jellyfish or, you know, or, or something, or you drown, or there's undertow. And why is everything so dangerous? We want to enjoy nature, but it will kill you. Because this world is under a curse of sin. And it's not a curse that is undeserved, it's a curse that's deserved. Once that's appreciated, what will happen to us is we'll long for a time when that curse isn't there anymore. And we don't have to wait for the New Testament to get that longing, it's right here. The psalmist is longing for a place where we'll be able to enjoy earth without all of the the repercussions of sin, death, and disease, and killing, and murder, and a messed up animal kingdom where animals are eating each other, and we're part of the food chain if we're not careful. There'll come a time when that is eradicated. Verse 35, let the sinners be consumed from the earth, let the wicked be no more. In other words, right now, there are wicked people, and things are wicked, things are broken right now. And the prayer request, the only prayer request in the whole psalm, The prayer request is that God would eradicate wickedness from the earth so that creation can be what it was supposed to be. So that God can enjoy the world without the grief of sin. That's the prayer request. Now when we look at that, that's part of what prompts praise. The psalm begins and ends with, Bless the Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord. This whole thing about God's sovereignty prompts him to praise the Lord. He's able to praise the Lord because of sovereignty. If you take sovereignty away from the psalmist, he can't praise the Lord now. Why? Because he's not God anymore. He's another being that he, his heart breaks at sin, just like your heart breaks, and death bothers him too, but he just has nothing to do with it. He's, he's not over it at all. Well, why pray to that God? Why pray to a God who doesn't exert control? He's only going to say, I can't do it. Why are you praying to me? Just work harder. Come up with cures or something. I don't know. Learn how to control the weather. What do you want me to do? I'm not, in, I'm not involved. But no, we do pray, don't we? We pray because we know he's in control. We know he can actually do something about it. And so it does prompt praise. It does prompt worship. And when we have this thing about sin, what does God do about wickedness? 
and all the natural disasters that happen that maybe are deserved. And we can't line it up. This tornado happened because these people did X, Y, and Z. It's not necessarily aligned with specific sins. I don't think it's right for us to watch the news and see something devastating and go, oh, let's go into their backgrounds and figure out the biographies of their lives and figure out what they did to deserve that specific storm. That was the mistake that Job's friends had, right? God's allowing suffering. There must be something specifically that you did that brought it about. No, Job said. And they said, you're a liar. And Job said, I'm not a liar. I didn't do something specific to do this. But nor can I say, God, I don't deserve this. That's the tension in Job. Job can't say, I did something specifically that brought this on, but nor can he say, God, you are wrong for allowing me to suffer. Then God doesn't give him an answer, right? God is like, wait, who's God? Who's in the chariot? You don't have the place to ask me what to do with my winds and my lightnings. I'm in the chariot. You're not in the chariot. Oh, can you be in the chariot? So can you play with the Leviathan? No, you can't play with the Leviathan. He's not a pet to you. He's a monster to you. What does Job say? Okay, I'll shut my mouth now and just worship you then. You're in the chariot. You know what you're doing. You're in control. In the end, all things will be as they're supposed to be. And along the way, I'm not going to question the turns that you decide to make. I'm not going to question your directions. I understand where you're taking us, and we're going to get there. Final thing I want to point out. Verse 35 is carried out by God in the end. The reason why the book of Revelation is so scary is because he's, he's doing verse 35. All the death and the blood and the killing and all that, it, it's because he's doing verse 35. He's eliminating wickedness in the book of Revelation, right? The one who's doing it is the ultimate son of David, who's Jesus Christ. We get that in Psalm 2. Now, we're going to back up to a second. We're not going to turn to the Psalms. I'm going to just give you this because it helps you understand the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms has five books. All the Psalms are divided into five books, except for Psalm 1 and 2, which are like a, a preface. You ever read a book, and before chapter 1, the author is giving you a little something. So before you start reading chapter 1, he's helping you out with understanding what's going on with this book, why I wrote this book, why this book came about, why my wife helped me write it, or whatever, how this idea came to me. It's a preface. Psalm 1 and 2 are like a preface. Psalm 1, here's what the blessed man is like, here's what the wicked man is like. Hey. Okay? Be the blessed guy. Don't be the guy that works in the counsel of the wicked and all that. Stands in the seat. Don't, you know, don't, don't be that wicked guy. He's like chaff. But if you want to be a guy that's like a, a tree planted, streams of water, fed, grows, is strong, lasts, be a blessed God follower guy. Don't be a wicked guy that doesn't care about God. That's Psalm 1. Psalm 2 is saying all those that are wicked and don't want to be uh, with God, will get crushed. Kiss the son unless he's angry. Right? The, son is, the son of David is going to have all the nations and he's going to crush them like pottery. Okay, That's Psalm 2. So before we read any psalm, Psalm 23, any psalm you pick, before we read that, we have this idea in Psalm 1 and 2 that there's two kinds of people in this world. People that are with God in this world. People that are with God and people that are not with God. And Psalm 2, people that are not with God, God's not going to just put up with that forever. There's going to be one time in the future when God puts that down and it's going to be through his son. It'll be the wrath and the anger of his son. 
Well, how do you escape it? How do you go from one group to the other? If you're, if you're a rebellious person, you're, you're lost, you don't, you're not at peace with God, how do you get to peace with God? To kiss the Son. The Son being Jesus Christ. You read Revelation, the one that's enacting all of that violence is Jesus himself with a tattoo on his thigh and the sword coming out of his mouth is Jesus Christ. And throughout the Psalms, we see the picture of a refuge that we can take to escape God's wrath, and that's the refuge of his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible makes that clear. So, while we're still breathing, while we still have life, we can be bothered by God's control. We can be bothered by it to the point of not even being able to worship him because we don't like the decisions he's made. We don't like the breath that he's taken away. We don't like how he's chosen to do it. We don't like how he sent his winds and his messengers of lightning. We don't like what he's caused or allowed to happen or overseas. However you want to put it, he's in control. It didn't happen because he's like, oops. It happened because he goes, yep. That can bother us to the point of not worshiping him. But that would only be because we don't understand the gospel. If we understand the gospel... I understand that I am a sinner and I don't have rights before God. Because I break his laws, I can't tell him, hey, I'm not going to keep your laws, but you keep the law of keeping me alive. No. He's the source of life. Me breaking the laws cuts me off from the source of life. And if I'm cut off from the source of life, what do I get? Death. I need to understand that. If I don't understand that, and I'm always going to second guess I have a really flimsy, weak analogy that I'll try on you in closing. Okay? Um, my wife's not here today. Uh, she's, she's still sick. You can pray for her. But many of you know that when we go somewhere, she drives. I don't drive. It's a chore for me to drive. I'd rather just sit in the passenger seat. And I know a lot of guys are like, no, I, wa- I, want, I want that. Uh, that's cool. That's cool for you. I don't. I don't want that. Why? Because I'll get us lost. I'll, I'll take the wrong turn. You know, I'll get distracted. There's all kinds of, it's frustrating for me, all that kind of stuff. She likes it. And she knows where she's going, and she knows how to get there. She can be in a place she's never been before. Some of you have personally experienced this. You've, she's never been here before. And she's like, oh, we'll go this way. It's a shortcut. No, it's not. Stop lying. It's a shortcut. I'm bringing up Google Maps. It's not on there. doesn't matter. She has Google Maps on her brain. All right, she's, okay, she's, she's, that's her X-Men, like, mutant power, okay? And we, we'll cut through, like, cornfields or something, and then, boop, we're there. We're there, okay? I've tried to argue in the past sometimes, and, and I lose, and I lose every single time. I always lose if I argue about direction. If we go on vacation, who's planning where, where we're going to stay, what hotel, who's got the best rates? Tina. So she could do start a business with it, okay, like a travel agent or something. I'm not going to argue with her on rates, routes, directions. Why? She's better at it than me, period. Better at it than me, okay? If you multiply that times infinity, it's a picture of us quibbling with God who's over all directions, over all things, has perfect wisdom and knows exactly when to let a breeze blow, when to let a butterfly wing flap, and how hard, when and how to push a blade of grass up from the earth. And we want to quibble with him 
about an event that has caused us pain that we think he shouldn't have allowed. And what the Bible is trying to do is smash that down and bring you to a point where you recognize, yes, he's in control. Don't lose that key. Don't go, never mind, he's not in control and, and enter into some lesser form of Christianity, honestly. Hold that tight. God is in control. And then when you're bothered by the things that he allows, we can't demand a specific explanation on every single thing he allows. Everything we read in the newspaper. Why did that person die? Why did that person die and not someone else? Why is that person dead and I'm still alive? Sometimes it hurts most when the person that has died, has passed on, we felt was a lot better than us. Why did that person die and go out with such pain and agony and I'm the one with a messed up background and I'm still alive? That doesn't make sense. doesn't have to make sense because you're not in the driver's seat or as the psalmist would say, you're not in the chariot. God is in the chariot and you have to be okay with that and you have to trust that he's going to do ultimately what is good and ultimately what is best for his glory. And if you want to be a part of that plan instead of an antagonist to that plan, then you, are, you place your faith in Jesus Christ and he is your refuge so that when wickedness is wiped out, you're not wiped out. You're kept in his refuge. He took that wiping out for you. Jesus took that punishment for you. And then we enjoy the new earth. And we get to enjoy the psalm better than ever before because of how things are in the natural world. It's only in Christ that we can experience that, and it's only in Christ that we can worship God in light of his sovereignty instead of trying to dismiss his sovereignty because we don't like God's decisions. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And uh, as we close, I'm hoping if there's a lot of gears spinning in your head, that's good thing. Uh, I I would urge you... To not stuff it in a shelf somewhere, but lean in, lean in, and unpack this. I think the doctrine of God's providence or sovereignty has been uh, one of the most shaping truths that we learn from Scripture for me personally. And rather than making difficult things harder to deal with, it makes difficult things easier to deal with if we understand God's reign over all things. If you're able, please stand and and let's close in a song of worship.